0: Alright, we're going to continue on, obviously, in our study of the book of Proverbs, and we're going to turn our attention to the next little section in the first chapter. We'll be looking in verses 8 uh, through 19 of chapter 1 of Proverbs, but I want to just start off with some introductory thoughts to kind of frame up our our study today. Um, when When you look at the current news headlines or you consult your favorite sort of news website or you turn on your favorite news channel and you just just sort of survey the content that's that's coming before you, the information that's being put out there as news or matters of concern for the general public. Now, it's not difficult for any of us, I think, to notice, um, partly because this is what often gets prominently put on display over and over again, but also because it's a very real thing that our culture, our society um, faces no shortage of social turmoil. We we are we are we live through or are in the midst of no small number of difficult or challenging, perplexing, frustrating, maddening, infuriating social or societal or cultural issues that seem to be um, at times inundating um, our our eyesight, inundating our thinking, inundating our exposure to anything related to what's new and important and current events. Um, and as you think about that, just I'll throw out the question, what, what would you say are some of the common uh, issues or prominent issues that, that you might say are affecting our culture or maybe even weakening our culture? What, what are some things that, that come to mind as you think about current events and news and what's kind of on display before us? I think just in general, the media just uh, like really skews a lot of a lot of like just objective things and, and makes it look way worse than it is, and then it creates factions. I think. Okay, so you might uh, characterize that as the the absence of integrity in all respects, whether it's in reporting what's going on, or you might even say it's. Um, there's too much agenda-driven information that's being propagated. It, everybody's kind of coming from an angle as opposed to just trying to be you know, objectively true and accurate. That's one good observation. What else? People don't want to take responsibility for their lives. Okay, that's a good one. So a lack of individual responsibility and a sense of accountability for one's actions. What else? The polarization. Yeah, that's a big one. Polarizing factions, uh, Some in some circles might call it, in the political realm, identity politics. You know, your whole sort of outlook or worldview is based upon some, you know, ethnic identity or something like that, um, as opposed to a common humanity. Um, just polarizing elements, you know, across the board, as you mentioned, in all, a whole bunch of different categories, for sure. Intolerance. Intolerance. I could go a couple of different directions with that, but that is something that is put out there as a significant problem, for sure. Yes. So, when you think about this, um, as you just sort of step back from these that are mentioned and a whole bunch of others that we could cite, and even as you think about it yourself, uh, as you as you tend to um, consume what you see as as portrayed as news or current events or kind of what you might characterize as you know, your barometer of what's going on in our general culture. I know that's a big, sweeping kind of way to look at it, but um, I don't want to overgeneralize unnecessarily. But as you think about it, kind of from that broad perspective, what would you say um, is the most, I would argue, one of the most, if not the most, prominent problems that we are facing that really is is kind of one of those core uh, societal problems, in other words it, it has ramifications that can can manifest in a whole range of ways, some of which we 've described already Godless society. okay, Godless society would be a definite mm-hmm. core sort of issue it, includes everything. it does include everything, so narrow it down a little more than that in terms of like um, on the other side of People's spiritual uh, convictions and the lack thereof, and just think in terms of social structures. Morality has been labeled hate. Okay, what else? All right, this is a trick question. I have an answer because I got to prepare for this. This is my this is my delight every time I do this because I always know what the answer is because I it's it's the answer that I've come up with. Um. So it's a real affirmation of my brilliance. I have to do that at the very beginning so I have confidence to get through the rest of the study, right? Um, but no, the thing that I, I think about, and I think that you could, you know, you could argue this um, fairly objectively, um, although I, I know that there's a lot of ways to look at it. Godless culture would be a, a way to look at it from a more substantive or core-core issue perspective. But I'll put it in a more societal or sociological um, category, and I would argue that the, you could say the weakening or really the decimation of the nuclear family, or you could put it into another category and say the, 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 the blight of fatherless households, of the absentee father in the lives of children. Um, there's been no shortage of study and statistical analysis done on this front. I'll just give you some of the, some of the statistics that, that uh, I found in a couple of different sources. Um, an estimated 24.7 million children, that's 33%, live absent their biological father. 33%, a full third. Yes, this is a Census Bureau uh, statistic. Of students in grades 1 through 12, 39%, or 17.7 million, live in homes absent their biological fathers. Fifty-seven point six percent of African American children, and thirty-one point two percent of Hispanic children, and twenty-point seven percent of white children are living absent their fathers. So that kind of breaks it down a little more demographically. According to, um, let's see. According to, so this is a this is a sort of a survey uh, response, a survey statistic. According to seventy-two point two percent of the U.S. population, fatherlessness is the most significant family or social problem facing America. Among children who are part of the post-war generation, 87.7% grew up with two biological parents who were married to each other. So just think of the massive disparity between the statistics I just read and, and that statistic. With the increasing number of premarital births and a continuing high divorce rate, the proportion of children living with just one parent rose from 9.1% in 1960 to 20.7% in 2012. Currently, 55.1% of all African-American children, 31.1% of all Hispanic children, and 20.7% of all white children living in single-parent homes. I just That's just a repeat of the similar statistic. Really, the bottom line is that the, the society in which we live and all the problems that we see, are they become multi-generational issues. And when you look at the book of Proverbs, what you see is this emphasis on passing down wisdom from generation to generation to generation. And if the structures in which that passing down begin to deteriorate or break down, then just the practical conduits for that kind of passing on of wisdom becomes fractured as well. And when you turn to, or actually Bruce Waltke, um in this section as, as, as we're looking at today, he says it this way, When the moral fiber of a nation is not formed by this, fo- this form of instruction, or this sort of instruction, society unravels and anarchy ensues. And if you just think about what we're seeing, I mean, some of it's just really foolishness and it's just kind of almost absurd to watch, but when you see some of the demonstrations on college campuses, the things that are just getting college students so upset and twisted up, it just demonstrates this tremendous lack of substantive rooting and grounding in anything real. Um, There's just a, a level of vacuous thinking that is really rampant, for example, in the college university communities across our country. And this is, I think, a direct result of the absence of passing down of wisdom. So on one hand, you can have students whose parents, in one way or another, have saw to it that they have the opportunity to go to a college and spend the money and pay for the all the costs of that That endeavor to get educated so that they can be prepared for a great career and to be successful in life. And yet there's a massive absence of the passing on of wisdom from generation to generation. So when we get to this section, starting in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, which continues on, by the way, through the end of chapter 9, it's basically this big section at the beginning of Proverbs of a father's instruction to his son or his sons, that's sort of the the category that this falls in, in these, these chapters, you begin to see how this was prominent amongst the people of God, the nation of Israel, and it has, to the extent that you can study other societies and other cultures throughout history, you will see the direct correlation between the parenting priority of passing along godly wisdom to the next generation and the soundness of that society year after year after year, generation after generation after generation. And the, con- the converse is also true. To the extent that that breaks down, you see the same thing happening in terms of the breakdown of foundational principles in society. So we come to this passage, and it's a great, a great section, a great way to introduce this whole section of a father's instruction to his sons. And so let's just read it. We'll read verses eight through verse nineteen. You start? Look at Solomon, who wrote these, and look at his sons. You don't have to look any further, do you? What happened? Yeah. And why should this surprise us? When you look right. At the Absolutely. Just Absolutely. One of those yeah, it's a great point. You don't have to look any further than one of the principal authors of the book we're studying to see that. It's a great point. Well, let's read the verses together. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, and we'll go all the way down to verse 19. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. And we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So you start this little section off, and I think it's just a really—it's a—it's a bit of a touching and beautiful way to start this, this whole section of a father's instruction to his son or his sons. It begins with this earnest appeal from from the father. It, it's actually an earnest appeal. It's not—it's not so much a uh, uh, set into ter- in terms of this strong imperative command. It's more of an earnestness of appealing. To the heart and mind and conscience of a son. In verse eight and nine, it says, "Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head, and pendants for your neck." To me, this not is just is, even though this sets out sets out to instruct a son, and really in more of a general way instruct the instruct young people. It's parental instruction for young people in its broadest application. So the focus does turn to that kind of instruction. But I also think that this is great instruction for parents. These first two verses to me provide tremendous encouragement and counsel and even admonition to parents as we seek to fulfill this mandate of passing on wisdom to the next generation. It's it's it represents this wise balance that parents need to pursue, the balance of parental input especially over time. When you think about the the practice of parenting, it is a job that is an ongoing over a long period of time kind of endeavor. And this this section to me is a great sort of illustration or or it has the the undertone of this kind of This kind of injunction toward wise balance over time for the parent in terms of the the nature and content of their input into the lives of their children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 would say something in this way, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is another way to look at this idea of balance. Discipline would be characterized more, it's more slanted toward chastisement or correction. And instruction is more slanted toward counsel or sort of another definition, would be properly setting or placing the mind of the child through God-inspired warning or admonition. Yes. Just something to make it look nice. Yeah, no, I'm getting to that. I will definitely do that. That's going to be, that's going to be coming in just a few moments. It's a good, uh, good note there. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in. No, that's okay. It's, we're going to get to that. It's definitely something we're going to highlight. But right out of the gate, you have this, this admonition toward balance, toward the balance of, of earnest appeal coupled with admonition, counsel, instruction, and even a bit of warning. It's an appeal, basically, and this is where your your question would go to. This appeal is an appeal to a higher, more noble or virtuous uh, life or pursuit of life. This pursuit of wisdom, it's an appeal towards something more noble, more high and more virtuous, more long-standing, more sustainable than just the appeal to the virtue of obedience and submission to authority. And that's what I mean by this balance over time. The appeal of parenting certainly does include a strong infusing into the life and heart of a child a recognition that they need to be submissive to those in authority over them. That is certainly a biblical principle that children need to learn to do. And it's certainly a discipline that children need to learn to Uh, sort of subdue their own will to. Because there are many, many times for all of us, but children included, where you don't feel like submitting, you don't think you should submit, it doesn't seem like what you're being asked to do is the best thing to do or the most fun thing to do or the right thing to do, and yet, in those settings and in those times and in those moments, what would honor the Lord most would be a submission to that authority, so long as it's not a compulsion to sin, of course. But in this case, you have this idea of also this appeal over time to higher virtues beyond just submission to authority, something that would, would compel an individual, a child, as they grow and mature, to long for and desire something bigger than just, I need to do this because I was taught I'm supposed to submit to authority. And that's where you get these images of a garland, a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. These are, these are ornaments of, of reward. So, to the godly, uh, the, excuse me, the godly instruction and teaching of a mother and father, if it's heard or if it's understood or embraced, would be another way to think about that. So, it's not just, not just I heard you, right? But it's, the, the implication is an embracing of this, this godly instruction, this godly teaching from a mother and a father. And if it's not forsaken, so forsake not the teaching of of the mother, then what it becomes are visible ornaments of honor, of accomplishment, of reward. And so the instruction here from the Father is not just, you need to do this so that bad things don't happen to you, or you need to do this so that you fulfill the commandment on your life to submit to those in authority over you, or that you fulfill the command to honor your father and mother. No, there's something much bigger than this for you, especially as you continue to grow and mature. And he's really talking to a young man here. He's not really talking to a small child who's just like, you, know, you need to do this so that you don't set the house on fire. And if you you know, if you don't do this, you're going to get in trouble. It's really this appeal to, over time, as a child grows and matures, something greater, something bigger, something more honorable for their own life, for the representation of who they are before God and men. It's these ornaments of recognition, of, of honor, of accomplishment. That's what these, these ornaments represent. The garland would be sort of a, a garland of achievement or victory. Would be it would be a kind of like a, a trophy of winning something like a championship trophy would be the the you know sort of a, a maybe a, a similar uh, uh, metaphor, and the same thing with the uh, the the pendant or the necklace. It's 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 a thing of beauty that represents a reward, a reward of virtue, a life of virtue, and it's interesting and kind of providential and I. I I hope that this is received in the way it's intended. Um, this morning at 1.30 a.m., 1.31 a.m. to be precise, my wife received a text message from our 19-year-old daughter who's up at college. And I can just assure you, as many of you have experienced with your own kids who have grown, the types of parental input and counsel changes tremendously once your kids kind of get out of the house and get on into college years or post high school years. And ours has done as well. And we've been in this journey of our daughter living away from us for the first year this year. So we're kind of in the throes of that transition ourselves as parents. And we've we've had sort of these ups and downs and ins and outs. We get off a phone call and we're like kind of look at each other and we're like, I, I don't know if I don't know if she's getting it. I don't know if she's understanding what we're saying. I don't know if we're getting through. I don't know if we said that. I mean, we're just all these doubts and questions, and you know, we don't we don't know if it's taking or not. And then we have these other conversations where it's just it's like she's very mature and and sounding very principled and, and clear-headed. But she sent a text at 131 this morning, and um, which is you know not too uncommon. I mean, she's Snapchatting us that she's playing you know, some board game with friends at 2 in the morning from time to time. So, Anyway, um, and she says, this is to, to her mom. She says, Hello, I know it's late and you're sleeping, but I by the way, we, we went to bed last night at like 9.30, so we were <laughs> definitely sleeping. Um, I know it's late and you're sleeping, but I just wanted to ask you if you wanted to do a mama-daughter Bible study this summer. We can go through Or excuse me, we can read through a book of the Bible or have a theme or something and read it it throughout the week, take notes, and then on like Saturdays, on like Saturdays, I mean, it's on like Saturdays, when we aren't working, we can sit on the porch and talk about it. Now, you want to talk about moving toward an ornament, a garland, you know, that kind of something. It's bigger than submission to authority because at this point... We're not driving towards submission. That's just not. I mean, what do we? How do we make her submit? Go to your dorm room. Don't leave until you know you're, in, you're grounded to your dorm room for five hours. I mean, th- there's really little we can do, right? This is what this is what this passage calls us to when it comes to this input of instruction and counsel and the nature of this appeal. It's the kind of appeal that says, "I'm not just calling you to submit because I'm." the Father, and you need to submit to me. It's an appeal to something much bigger, much greater, much more sustained for your life as you continue to grow and mature. It's much bigger than that. Now, after this appeal, so you start off with this really compelling appeal, and it's also really captivating because it's not just, it's not just fatherly-centric. It's an appeal to the Father's instruction... And the mother's teaching, do not forsake the mother's teaching, which is, which is really a departure from other wisdom literatures in that time frame. Like, For example, Egyptian wisdom literature was pretty significant at that time. And you would not have this, this deference to the mother at all in a very patriarchal, uh, male-dominated and focused society. So this is a great balanced approach, too, to the, to the value and importance of the mother's role in instructing children. But after this great appeal that really is a good example for us, it really appeals to our sense of what are we supposed to do and how are we supposed to balance our parenting input, it gives us some insight in there. It moves on to what, uh, what one commentator, David Hubbard, calls a warning against bad company. A Warning Against Bad Company. It's verses 10 to 19. Here's what what David Hubbard says about this next section. He says, The teachers know that life was lived in groups. Their society was still deeply affected by the instincts of Israel's tribal and clannish beginnings. As strong as were the parental ties uh, saluted in verses 8 to 9, the voices of mother, father, or teacher were not the only calls vying for attention. People with malice on their minds, sinners openly committed to create mayhem or murder in the name of greed, were also uttering their seductive invitations. The fact that this alarm of the dangers of bad company is the first specific warning sounded in Proverbs suggests that folly is not just an individual matter, but a social one as well. We travel in groups, whether they are our social friends, our service club, our prayer partners, our tennis set, our business colleagues, or our street gang. What we become is determined in some significant measure by the company we keep. So this is this admonition, this warning against bad company. And you'll note he starts with what is really this flashy but deceptive way to describe the allurements associated with running with these, these companions, these foolish companions. In verses 11 to 14, it says, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive, whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us, and we will have one purse. In other words, it's giving this, this appeal to, to intrigue and danger and excitement. This is a much more flashy on the surface, appeal, than a garland or an ornament. Do you see that? You see how the the, the nature of the language is just, it's all about um, the promise of excitement, the rush of power, or the appeal of gaining quick riches, gaining quick money. And also, it's an appeal to the youth who long for the acceptance of others. I mean, we tend to run in groups and we long for being accepted by others, but particularly young people, I mean, they crave it. And oftentimes, young people with firm convictions who are reared in homes with very firm convictions that they once embraced will begin to compromise those convictions just for the sake of being accepted by a particular social group. Happens all the time. And so, he's pointing out that, look, this this appeal, these allurements, yeah, there, there's there's a level of near-term or short-term excitement there's a certain rush of these kinds of these kinds of activities there's a, there's an adventuresome element to it there's this appeal for, for quick gain you know quick get, quick capturing of riches is the, is the is the metaphor here but it could be anything else quick a quick path to popularity a quick path to authority a quick path to prominence of some kind it's all about quickly in a group, a rush of excitement and power and quick access to gain or popularity or riches or some other vice. So gangs were started recently. No, it's not a recent thing. It's a good point. Way back then. Yeah, but there's, I think that one writer, I think his name was Solomon, said there's nothing new under the sun, right? Mm-hmm. And gangs are... Same writers. Same <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Now, when you look at this section, uh, another commentator, Derek Kidner, says this, the proposal, in verses 11 to 14, owes its attractiveness to its offer of a quick route to excitement and power. In parentheses, he says, the youth pictures himself a person to be reckoned with instead of patronized and kept in his place. And above all, it appeals to acceptance as one of the gang. And so when you think about this whole appeal of youth to be a part of something exciting or the rush of some kind of plot or plan, and the countervailing battle that young people face and feeling like they're constantly being put in their place. You know, they're constantly being asked to obey or submit or do this or don't do that. So the enticement of bad companions has tremendous allure, tremendous appeal. And wisdom, an instruction of wisdom, is not going to hide that fact, it's going to highlight that fact. You should never think that somehow allurements to folly are going to have no appeal to you. They're going to have tremendous appeal to you. And wisdom comes in recognizing that. It's not the kind of thing where you have to, I mean, how wise does one have to be to say, you know what, I probably don't want to go here because if I do, I think I'm going to get shot. In fact, I think I know I'll get shot. So I'm not going to go to that place and do that thing because I'm, I'm, I know that that's the outcome. And I think it's going to happen like five minutes after I get there. So I'm so wise to look at that and go, I don't think I'm going to do that. No, no. Wisdom comes in recognizing that there's an allurement here. There's an allurement that's often associated with the group mentality. the, the Sort of the group think mentality that goes along with, with the subtlety of sin. The other thing that Kidner says about this, though, is he says, you know, even though you have this attraction on the front end, he says it this way, the sting is in the tail. It's not on the front end. The pain is not up front. The power, the popularity, the prestige, the excitement, the adventure, that's on the front end. The sting, he says, is in the tail. But wisdom sees below the surface. It sees below the surface to what motivates sinful men. And it sees beyond the temporary or momentary enticements. And it it has in mind what are the long-term destructive outcomes of sinful actions. That's that's a young man or young woman moving toward wisdom, growing in wisdom. They're not responding and reacting and making decisions based upon the initial allurement or enticement. Wow, this will be fun. Wow, this will be cool. Wow, won't this be exciting? No, no, no. They see through that and they're looking to what's below the surface. What's motivating this course of action? What's motivating this endeavor? And also, what's going to be the long-term outcome of this? Where's this going to end up in the long run? That's what wisdom produces. Proverbs 24, 1-2 says it this way. Verse 1, Be not envious... Of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For, get this, their hearts devise violence, and their lips talk of trouble. So the idea here is that friendship with fools, with sinful fools, is likely to lead to your own corrupt mind. It's likely to result in your own perversion of speech. And ultimately, there's a total emptiness in these kinds of relationships. It's, it's like the, the whole promise on the front end is completely vaporized on the back end. So even the, the collective relationship piece of it becomes empty. And it doesn't deliver on its promise. And, and the wise person, the wise young man, the wise young woman sees through that. Hubbard, again, in his commentary says, this verse summarizes the teaching, speaking of chapter 24, verse 1 to 2 that I just read, to not be envious of evil men. It summarizes the teaching that we see here in our section in verses 10 to 19 of chapter 1, by exposing the perversion of mind that leads to wrong choices and wrong deeds. The warning is apt. Who of us can say that he or she has felt no tug of attraction, no glint of envy, upon hearing stories of wealthy criminals or flamboyant desperados or fast-living gangsters? Which of us has not silently cheered for the robbers in some police stories we have read or seen? There is enough rebellion in all of us to lure us to look sympathetically at a life of waywardness, particularly if we can keep from getting caught. A heart that meditates about destruction What a misuse of our human ability to think and to choose. Our hearts, our minds, were made to frame prayers, memorize scripture, write poems, plan acts of love, compose symphonies, design buildings, discover medicines. Yet the evil people in Proverbs used that God-given capacity for plots of violence. Whose cattle could they rustle? Whose house could they loot? Whose caravan could they hijack? What reputation could they ruin? Whose blood could they spill? An exercise in emptiness it was to make common cause with such perverted minds. So again, the wise person and the appeal of the father to the son is, be wise, recognize the allurement on the front end, Recognize, though, the emptiness of it all, the motivation behind it all, and the ultimate sting on the back end. He says in verses 17 to 19 of chapter 1, he says, "...for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood." There's the sting. "...they set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain." It takes away the life of its possessors. So, the sting comes on the back end. The vain folly of their vain plotting will be exposed, he says, like a net spread in the sight of any bird. Now, I think the metaphor is pretty clear, but if you are going to try to trap a bird in a net, what would happen if the bird saw you coming with a net? And he's pointing out the folly of these people, these companions. That ultimately, they're the ones that are going to be trapped. They're not the, the smart ones. They're not the shrewd ones. They're like someone trying to entrap a bird with the bird watching them coming with the net. And we all know what happens when I mean, a bird's going to just flitter away. They're the ones that are going to be entrapped. They're going to be the ones whose folly is exposed. The thing that they see as their advantage and their means of gain, the the plotting and the ambush, right it becomes the cause of their own downfall and destruction. And so this instruction from the father to the son, particularly as it relates to the the company that you keep, is to recognize what's really going on here. Recognize what the real motivations are recognize the emptiness of these kinds of relationships, no matter how exciting and adventurous they might seem on the front end, and recognize that the end is their own destruction, that there's no reward for ill-gotten gain. There's no reward for fast excitement, fast riches, none of that. And the wise person, the wise youth, see that. They recognize that. In chapter 9, you have this sort of this personification of folly, and it adds more color to this whole idea. Proverbs 9, verses 13 to 18, says this. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says... Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Personifying this appeal, this allurement of sin, of ill-gotten gain. And our, our, our teacher, this father teaching children, here at the outset of Proverbs chapter 1 Teaching a son says, notice this, recognize this, understand this. Now I think it's important to note as a kind of a concluding thought that there is a gospel tension here. Right? What's the gospel tension in all of this? Do you know what I mean by gospel tension? What what is the mandate of the gospel in all believers? What's the Great Commission? How about I put it that way: Go and make disciples of all nations. Right? There's an evangelistic enterprise that we're to undertake. Right? I mean, otherwise we would be in heaven by now. Right? I mean, as there's, I mean, there's, there's a mission that we're on. So our mission, or our mission field, is not, you know, us, us for and no more. Right? We have to go. You can't take the gospel to the nations unless you go and take the gospel to the nations. So when you think about this, this wisdom and this instruction, the gospel tension would be, how am I, particularly as a youth, as a young man or young woman, but not, not exclusively, I don't want to be too focused on that, how am I to fulfill the mandate of gospel mission, of the great commission to go to, to tell the nations of the good news of Christ, to engage a lost world, to engage people who would be characterized by what Proverbs just described. How do I do that without becoming myself defiled in the process? And there again is the challenge of wisdom, right? Right? The challenge of discernment. The point here is not about what you are going to do, but what is actually occurring inside you in the process. And this is a call for us to be reflective and aware of the inner workings of our hearts and minds and the temptation of our sinful fallen nature to be led astray easily. So if you find yourself in relationship with a person or people, and you find yourself having to consistently justify the intensity or extent or frequency of that relationship as a, as a point of gospel witness, you might want to be suspect of your own heart. If you're constantly having to justify that. And by the way, if you find yourself very comfortable in that kind of relationship, and people of that kind, of that temperament, of that practice, are very comfortable with you in extended time, in extended relationship, you might want to call that into question. The fact of the matter is, is that when we go to people and we share the truths of the gospel and the claims of the gospel, what is it that we're having to confront? We're having to confront the fact that they are fallen and sinful just like we're fallen and sinful, and we desperately need a Savior. So everything that you're running to and appealing to in your own life and craving and going after is, in the end, destruction for you. I'm not sure how long you can have Starbucks over that kind of conversation unless there's conviction and repentance or the Spirit of God working on their hearts for them to want to know and hear more, or it might put a little bit of a strain on their relationship. But there definitely is a gospel tension here. The, 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 the opposite extreme would be problematic for us as believers, and that is to begin to think that, you know what, I can't associate with those people because just the mere association of any kind, I run the risk of being let off the deep end in my life and making shipwreck, shipwreck of my own faith. That, to me, would be a cop-out for the maturing believer. We are called to engage our world with the gospel. And sometimes that involves social engagement. Sometimes it involves casual conversation and showing actual interest in their life and their concerns and their families and their work and their challenges, right? So there is a level of engagement there that's real and tangible. And to avoid that under the guise of protecting your own sanctification would, I think, be equally um, unwise. And possibly even self-centered and sinful. So again, the need for wisdom, right? The need for wisdom. Any final thoughts before we pray and wrap up? Just quickly going back to last week we talked about the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And out of curiosity I looked it up in the concordance. Interesting. It gave three different words, two nouns and an adjective, fear, of course, mm-hmm. and reverence. Terror. hmm You looked it up too. I did? I that was interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's all it's all a part of it, right? Yes. I mean, um what's the passage? Is it Hebrews where it says it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of a angry, angry God? God, right? I mean, it's that's part of it. And if I'm if I'm walking in sin, I I should be. There should be an element of, of yes. fear. Yes, yes, yeah, so it's all a part of it. Alright, well let's pray and we'll be dismissed.